You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Tonight, and I don't usually fall prey, but I, I could not turn it off. It was on the Yom Kippur War, and it had live footage, actually from some of the battle scenes from photographers who were there. It was really powerful. And uh, uh, there's, a, there's a whole series, apparently, coming out on the Yom Kippur War. There were certain moments where they had intelligence and if they had decided to act with it. But you can't say that that would have changed the course of world history. It would have changed the course of Israeli history. But there were moments in World War II that arguably, one could say, literally, world history could have changed. And uh, one of them was the Battle of Britain. Um, Hitler had basically conquered most of Europe. He set his sights on the British, on the English. Uh, at the time, England was still considered one of the world empires, which people tend to forget when they look back. And um, it, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that he was going to invade Britain. But he understood that first he had to weaken them. So Israel, so 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 Germany basically began to attack Britain from the air, and what became known as the Blitz. And the British Air Force took to the skies. And over a period of weeks, basically, the RAF fought the Luftwaffe for control of the skies over Europe. And uh, the British were outnumbered, they were outmanned, but they were not outclassed. And when it became clear that the, Germ- that the Germans did not have the long range, the bombers couldn't be supported by the fighters, I'll spare you all the details, there are many documentaries that can fill those gaps... Uh, it became clear that Britain had won the war for the skies. And Winston Churchill, this was really the first bright moment in a year of just horrible, horrible news. And he famously said, this is not the end, this is not even the beginning of the end, but this is the end of the beginning. And that's this week. Parshat Breshit is one last beginning. You know, first you have the month of Elul, and then you have Rosh Hashanah, but you're not done yet, because Yom Kippur is still the beginning of the year. And then you have Sukkot, and Shemini Atzeret is, the world is judged, but then you're still not done, you have the portion of Breshit. Now we're finally getting into the meat. The meat of, of, of what, what, what we're going to be doing this year. And it's interesting, you know, we're entering a year which is quite challenging. Um, if anybody would have imagined last year how much the world would change, uh, we would have laughed. Who, who could imagine? I mean, you talk to people and you remember, I was recently speaking with someone and sharing with him sort of the last time I saw him when I was in the States. And I said, I felt like, I feel like that was a different world. And he said, yeah, it was a totally different world. The world has completely changed. Uh, it remains to be seen sort of what will remain changed, what will continue to change, and what will go back to the previous reality that we knew. But everybody agrees that the world as we knew it is not going to be the same. So one hopes that this year, things will get better. And comes along Parshat Noach. Parshat Breshit, the first portion, is full of so much promise. Beginnings and creation and light being brought into the world and the creation of human beings. It ends sort of, or rather the middle of the portion seems to take us down a peg. After all the potential of that creation, it's almost as though the fabric of creation or included in the fabric of creation is man's potential for messing it all up. Right? <clears throat> you look back at, uh, I can only speak through the lens of someone in Israel, but if you look back at the lens of sort of how, how Israel has handled the coronavirus, you kind of feel in March that, that we were really on a roll. 
we had somehow succeeded in controlling it. And Baruch Hashem, the death toll wasn't so great, even though obviously every single life is horrendous to lose a life. And and the the the, the, the people seem to be cooperating and the government had its act together. It, it seemed full of so much promise. They opened up the, the, the Seger, you know, the closure, and they were going to open up the skies. And then it seems like it took a week. It all went downhill. Our capacity to mess up what we do is remarkable. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Shem says to them, "Don't you could do whatever you want. Just don't eat from one tree. One tree. What do we do? Where is it? <laughs> That's our challenge. Two brothers, Cain and Eva. You couldn't ask for a more simple recipe. Right? It says, Vahi Cain Cain was a farmer, and Hevel was a shepherd. That is a remarkable concept. Let's assume for the moment that we take the, the, the Torah literally, which one does not have to do, but let's say we do. Why do you have to have one farmer and one shepherd? Why can't they both farm and shepherd? Why can't they be partners and farm the world? The, the, the fact that we, we are created in Hashem's image and have such individual great potential is our own downfall. So the middle of the parsha, Cain and Hevel, first murder, seems like a disaster. But the end of the portion, Lemech gives birth to Noach. And why is Noach named Noach? This one will succeed in comforting us or in changing the direction of our actions. Right? Within the, 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 the fire of destruction is always hidden the spark of redemption. The, the world can change. And Rashi there says that Noach invented the plow. Now the Torah doesn't tell us this because the Torah is not a history book. But you think about the enormous change that came into the world when the plow was invented. It, it meant that you could tame nature. It meant that you could, you could, you know, that the hunter-gatherers could now be in cities and, 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 and cultivate the land and so on and so forth. So you start Noah with this enormous potential. And by the way, the potential here is greater than last week. Because this is not the individual who thinks he succeeded. This is the individual who thought he succeeded, blew it, overcame that mistake, and now has learned from his mistakes and says this time it will be different. And that has enormous promise because this person is sobered to reality. And then you see what happens in this week's parasha. Right? The land is filled, it's actually the end of the last week's parasha, but the, the land is, is filled with, with violence and, and, and Hashem sort of understands that this isn't what the world was created for. I can no longer tolerate man. Right? And we all know the story. Build an ark, get the animals, get in, let's go. The rain starts falling, the world is destroyed. Now here's an interesting question. Who's responsible? Who's responsible for the destruction of the world? So you say, well, the land was filled with violence. Right? The world, you know, we blew it. But who created us? I mean, Hashem created us with the potential for evil. So... If we're created with the potential for evil, and we live up to that potential, it's hard to only blame man, right? You have to, you have to at least presume it's shared responsibility. Hashem should realize he made a mistake. You don't find that. Not only that, what is the Pasuk? It's a famous Pasuk in Yeshayahu. 
Isaiah, this is in Perak Nindalada, chapter 54, uh, verse 9, Perak Nindalada, Pasuk Tet, right? Um, and, and, and I want to just add, we're going to, um, we're going to, we're going to dedicate this uh, shear um, to Ephraim HaKohen Ben Yitta Miriam. Uh, we had a student a few years back, Duvi Grumet, I actually was in uh, New York uh, last year, we celebrated his wedding, it was beautiful, I wasn't at the wedding, but I was at the Shabbat Shabbat Chatan. And unfortunately, his grandfather is fighting uh, Corona, and it's a little scary. So we should keep in our tefillot to Fry Makoin Ben Yitta Miriam. I apologize for getting at the beginning. Yeshayahu says that the, the flood actually has a, a responsible culprit. Kimei Noach Zotli. This flood is the flood of Noach, the water of Noach. Right? Yeshayahu reminds us that Hashem swore that He would never bring the flood of Noah on the world again. In other words, when Isaiah is giving us Musr, and he's reminding us that, that we have to do better, he does tell us the world won't be destroyed. You will be destroyed. The Jewish people will be destroyed. But you won't be de- the world won't be destroyed. I will never bring the flood of Noah. So who, if, if I call the flood the flood of Noah, then it would seem to be that Noah is responsible, right? And the commentaries, in fact, the Zohar in uh, in Chelak Aleph in Samach Zayin, the Zohar, Zohar explains this: Why is Noah held responsible for the flood? Because Noah didn't ask for mercy. Now this is interesting. There's a there's a, a well known Rashi, the beginning of this week's portion, that compares Avram and Noah, right? Noach was perfect in his generation. So Rashi explains there are two ways to look at that. You could say that Noach was perfect in his generation, but if he had lived in the time of Avraham, nobody would have paid him attention. Right? It's like it's like the, the, the comedy of calling someone like me or Rosh Hashiva. Anybody who ever spent time around Ravikhazi knows how ridiculous that is. And it, it's healthy to be humble. Right? So Noach, if he lived in the time of Avraham, everybody would have laughed. The other possibility is the opposite. The other possibility is that if Noah was perfect in his generation, can you imagine how high a level he would have reached in the time of Avram when, when, when the world was a better place? But the question that people miss is, why is Noah being compared to Avram? Why don't you compare Noah to Yitzchak or Yaakov or Adam or Rishon? Why do you compare him to Avram? So one way of understanding that is because, because, because both Noah and Avram have similar scenarios. They are faced with destruction, but they react in completely different ways. Avram is told that stone is going to be destroyed, and he argues with God. In fact, we learn the halacha, we learn the tradition of having a makom kavua, of praying, of davening in a set place from the story of Avram and Stom. When Stom is about to be destroyed, after Avram has this whole back and forth, this dialogue struggling, attempting to find ten righteous people, tzaddikim, who will save the world or save Sdom or the five cities of the of the plains below where Avram lives. Right? So when that whole dialogue is open over, and it seems that Avram is arguing with Hashem. So it says Vayashkem Avram Baboker, the next morning Avram arises early. Vayashkem is always a language of rising to your purpose. Vayashkem Avram Baboker and Avram arises early, Vayashkem Avram Baboker, and he saddles his donkey to take Yitzchak to the binding of Isaac, living up to sort of the challenge of the moment. Uh, when Paro decides to pursue 
the Jewish people, same word, right? When when Bilam, right, goes out to, to, to he does something similar when he goes out to curse Jewish people. So so this is a moment of truth, right? Avram refuses to accept that stone needs to be destroyed. He tries to do something about it. Now the fact that Hashem has decided and it'll be what it'll be is irrelevant to the fact that Avram tries to make a difference. Noah, on the other hand, when Hashem says, right, get into the ark, they just get in. And the saddest, the saddest piece of the entire story of Noah is that Noah and his family get in alone. So the Zohar, Yeshayahu, seems to hold Noah accountable. How could you not have attempted to change fate? Right? But, and, and we could give a whole sheer, we could have a whole discussion about our challenge to make a difference in the world. Except that at its root, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Right? The Zohar there says, and I'm quoting, When Noach gets out of the ark, he begins to cry. And he says, You were called the merciful. Why didn't you have mercy in your creations? We, we can't even imagine. You know, there are movies that are made about what it must be like to awaken to a world post-nuclear holocaust. Noach is the ultimate Holocaust survivor. This is not six million. This is the entire population of the earth. Right? And so Noah holds God accountable. How could you not have mercy on your creations? Right? Hashem is not going to hold back. And he says, Roeshote, foolish shepherd. In other words, you were the shepherd of the world. Now you're telling me this? When I told you I saw you as righteous before me, what did you think I was telling you? I wanted you to ask mercy for the world. If, if we see a world that isn't perfect and we don't try to do anything, we're responsible. Right? But that's a very difficult idea. How can you daven? How can you pray? How can you te- attempt to act against the will of Hashem? If you look in Parak Vav, at the beginning of this week's portion, Pasuk Gimel, right, the third verse, it says in the sixth chapter, He says, I am going to destroy the world. So if Hashem isn't intending to destroy the world, then why does He say that? And if He is, how can you possibly change destiny? And this, of course, is, is a very challenging question in the reality we find ourselves in. How far do you go to attempt to change the reality around you. You know, there's a whole world out there that thinks that masks are ridiculous. What's the difference? And it seems to me that there are two groups. Right? One group is the conspiracists, those who think that big government is trying to control us or, or whatever. And I'm not going to comment on this. Uh, you can uh, imagine my opinion. But And then there's the group that are the fatalists. They say, like, what's the difference? If we're going to get it, we're going to get it. My my. My wife shared with me that a, a relative of a relative, an older gentleman, very fine fellow, who's at least in his 80s, and he just decided, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to stay isolated, and I'm not going to stay away from my, my grandchildren. Right? You know, his wife had passed away, and he, he said, I'm not going to live like that. Who knows how long I'm going to live like this? I've lived a good life, and if it gets me, it gets me. I'm not going to stay distant from my grandchildren. And at first I thought, that's crazy. Like, you know, you're only in your 80s. You could have another 30, 40 years. But then you think, well, maybe he's right. You know, I mean, we make a bracha in the morning, right? 
המכין מצעדי גביה. He who prepares the footsteps of man. And the Gemara in Brachot, on Daf Samach, the 60th folio of Brachot, says that you make this bracha when you put your shoes on. Right? Or rather, I'm sorry, when, when you have your shoes on and you take your first steps. And one way of understanding that bracha is that as I start my day, and I know that I have many steps to take, understand that Hashem has prepared everything. And it's put in your head at the beginning of your day, and if you get nothing else out of this year, that idea is worthwhile. Put in your head at the beginning of the day, that whatever's going to happen to me today is what Hashem planned. You know, you get in your car, you're late for a meeting, Hashem decided you're going to be late for the meeting, don't get frustrated. You know, you, you want to make your coffee, you're on your way, you're leaving on time, the coffee spills in your pants, you have to change, and now you're going to be late. Hashem wanted you to be late. Just be curious, why did Hashem want to be late? What traffic accident am I missing? Right? So if you live life like that, then what's the difference if you wear a mask or not? Hashem says, I'm going to destroy the world. Who am I to daven against the Ratzon of Hashem? Right? Now, you could say, well, it would almost be a Chil Hashem. Right? I mean, you know, if, if, if Hashem is going to destroy the world, then there'll be... But Moshe urges Hashem to change his mind. I'm going to put aside for the moment how you could ask Hashem to change his mind, but okay. Right? Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, Lech red Get down, your people have become destructive. Right? And the Chet HaEgel and the sin of the Golden Calf. And Moshe says, wait a second, you can't do that. Lama Emun Mitzrayim, what are the non-Jews going to say? Right? Remember what you promised Avram in Yitzchak and Yaakov. Right? And, and the rabbis ask, how could, Moshe, how could Moshe say this? One of the contentions of Moshe is that by definition, if you destroy the Jewish people, which is what Hashem is, is, is saying at least he's going to do, then that inherently is a desecration of Hashem's name. That the people that represent God somehow will be destroyed. And, and, and Hashem acquiesces to Moshe. And the Jewish people are not destroyed. But you can't say that here. There's no Chil Hashem. There's no desecration of Hashem's name because there's no world left. No Achim's family know that Hashem runs the world. Everybody else is gone. So why would you expect Noach to ask Hashem to change the world? Right? So Rav Nevensal has a magnificent idea which I wanted to share with us. And I think it, 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 it sort of it challenges us to what's really going on. You know, you're we're living in a world of, of, of black and white. People have forgotten the gray. If, if, if you're a Trump supporter, then Biden is the devil. He's the sum total of all evil. And if you're a Democrat, then Trump is the devil. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine that anybody reaching that level of politics is perfect. And I'm not about to comment on some of the issues or, or you know, my personal opinion. But to say that either one of those people has done nothing good would be absurd. To say that either one of them is totally good would also be absurd. And yet we've, we've become so entrenched in our extremes. And you see this everywhere you look, you know, in, in, in the world of Corona as well. You either sort of wear your mask or you don't. You're either those who support or those who don't. There doesn't seem to be a middle ground. Right, so so so, how do you deal with that? And on a, on a greater level, putting aside for the moment the incredible challenge that many people are having, um, you know, one of the greatest, uh, I guess, mitzvot 
is, is, is to find means and ways to bring people together. And we're living in a reality that seems to cause us to be apart. And if you could think of an experience, a Jewish experience that brings people together, it's a wedding. We're living in a reality where weddings are meant to be separated and alone. And if people come together, the police break them up, right? And I'm not debating the efficacy of it, but, but, but it has to cause us to pause. You have to take a step back and ask yourself, what's really going on here, right? And, and what are we meant to be doing? I mean, for a while, we were walking around sort of with our heads held high. Israel is a role model. Look how we've managed this. Look how disciplined we are now. Now you want to hide under the covers. It's horrendous. What is our voice supposed to be? So there's an interesting parallel, right? The, 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 the Medrash, right, gives, and the Gemara and Makot, gives us an interesting example that, that I think, Rav Nevitzel talks about this in his Sichot, that, that I think parallels this particular situation with Noah. And that's the question of, of an ear miklat. Okay? In Sefer Bamidbar, in Perak Lamanhe, in the 35th chapter, I think it's Pasuk Chafei. So the mitzvah, we have a mitzvah that when someone accidentally kills someone, if there's ever really an accident, they have to run to a city of refuge. Now, how you define someone as sort of being held responsible to go to a city of refuge is an interesting question. The bet in the court has to do this. But uh, for argument's sake, you're, you're putting your ladder up outside, you're fixing a light, and you're not careful enough about how you put your ladder, and the ladder falls over and it kills somebody. So on the one hand, you didn't do it on purpose. On the other hand, you're negligent. So in that instance, for various reasons that are beyond the purview of this discussion, you don't get to go on with life as normal. You've made a terrible error. You left your car parked on the hill, you forgot to put the parking brake on, it rolled down the hill, God forbid, and killed somebody. On the one hand, you're not a murderer. On the other hand, you're not innocent. So you have to go to a city of refuge. Now, how long do you have to stay in the Irmiklat, in the city of refuge? You have to stay there until the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, dies. That is a bizarre rule. What does the Kohen Gadol, what does the high priest have to do with the fact that you accidentally killed someone? Right? And the Pasuk says, ba. This is not some idea that we get sort of orally. This is from Ferus Pasuk. The Torah tells us you stay there until the coin Gadol dies. So the Mishnah in Makot, right? You know, this is the best thing about uh, about preparing a shear. You find things that you, I always thought this was a matter. This is Mamash in the Mishnah. The Mishnah in Makot in Perak Perak Bet Mishnah Vav says as follows: Imotehen shel Kohen Gadol. Right, so let's say that your son is the Kohen Gadol. He's the high priest. Arguably one of the highest level, most spiritual role models, teacher par excellence. And he's now the high priest in the base of Mikdash. Well, there's a whole bunch of people who are sitting in a city of refuge. They're stuck somewhere up in the Golan or down in the, in the desert. And they can't go home. They can't get out. They can't go back to Tel Aviv until the Kohen Gadol dies. So what does a Jew naturally do? He davens to Hashem for the Kohen Gadol to die. Right? So the mother of the coin couple, you know, who else is going to worry about the coin couple, about the high priest, but the, this is a Jewish mother. She's all nervous about this. I don't want people doubting for my son to die. It's not good. It's an Ainara, right? So imo tehenshel coin couple, so the mothers of a coin couple, misapkotla and michyaksut, they would bring food and clothing. You know, Bobby's coming to the ear miklat with chocolate chip cookies, right? Michal's cookies. 
In order to prevent the boys from davening for her son to die. Beautiful Jewish mother. But uh, it's a rather strange halacha. It's a rather strange idea. Why should the mother... I mean, imagine your son is the Chafetz Chaim. Chafetz Chaim was a coin. And the Beit HaMikdash is built, and we make the Chafetz Chaim the coin Gadol. I believe that if the Beit HaMikdash would have been built during his time, he would have been the coin Gadol. By unanimous vote. Okay. So let's say that the mother of the Chafetz Chaim is still alive. She's worried that, that some guy, that the negligent guy, the car the used car salesman who didn't check the brakes on the car he sold, he's davening for the Chafetz Chaim to die, so she's worried about the Chafetz Chaim. I would think that the mother of the used car salesman should be bringing cookies to the Chafetz Chaim, because if the Chafetz Chaim finds out that Bernie the car salesman is davening for him to die, he won't even have to daven. He'll just think one negative thought. The guy will be zapped. He'll just turn into a worm. He's the Chafetz Chaim. That this, why does the mother, and this is a Mishnah in Makkah, this is not some, you know, Chassidish, I mean, why would I have to worry about the prayers of someone like that? Right? Shlomo Melech says, it's a Pasuk in Mishlei, If somebody makes a vain curse, there's no reality to it, if a person didn't earn it, don't worry about it. It's Mamash a Pasuk in Proverbs in Mishlei. Somebody comes up to you, I curse you that you should, if you know you didn't deserve it, don't worry about it. Right? And the Gemara in Makot, right? So what is going on here? So the Gemara in Makot says a fascinating thing. It's a Gemara in Dafir Aleph. It says, because at the end of the day, the Kohen Gadol actually does carry a certain responsibility. What is the job of the Kohen Gadol? His job is to elevate the generation. Right? His job is to elevate the generation. If, if on a mystical level, if the Kohen Gadol, if the high priest was doing what he was supposed to be doing, there wouldn't be any negligence. People would be more careful. That's an unbelievable idea. That the Kohen Gadol bears some responsibility for the spiritual level of the entire Jewish people. Right? Now, it's interesting, a strange halacha, which is also the Mishnah in Parag Bet, says that even if the Kohen Gadol dies, this just proves the point, right? Let's say Bernie the car salesman you know, sells his car, and accidentally somebody gets killed. And he gets sent to an ear miklat. Okay? Okay, so then you got to wait for the coin gadol, whatever high priest is, is in office, when he gets to the to the ear miklat. But let's say that Bernie says, I, 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 you know, I sell a good car. And the guy says, no, no, this car was negligent. I mean, the brakes didn't work. So what do you do? You go to a bezin, you go to a court. And the court has to rule whether there was negligence. I'm oversimplifying, but okay, right? So what if Bernie's car kills somebody and then they're going to take him to court and they're in court. But before the court rules, the coin guard will dies. And a new one is appointed. So what happens to Bernie? On the one hand, Bernie's bummed. Because if he would have gotten a verdict a day earlier, he would have only spent a day in a near On the other hand, maybe the new coin guard is 19 years old. He's going to be stuck for 100 years. Right? So the halacha is that if the new coin gadol is appointed before the verdict, the shogeg goes free only when the new coin gadol dies. That's an unbelievable halacha. How could that be? So the Gemara in Makot says, Because the new coin gadol right away should be finding out that there's someone who is about to be, who's in court, 
and his verdict is going to sentence him to an ear miklat, and it should bother him enough to go ask the Bezdin to be merciful. And if he didn't do that, he's partially responsible. That's how far the responsibility of a Jewish leader goes. Right? The coin, not the coin Gadol, should, should, should interfere with justice in the courts. So if Nevenzel suggests that there's a chiv of limutzchus, that you as a leader have a responsibility, first of all, to, 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 to view someone favorably, to assume the best about a person. You have a responsibility to influence other Jewish leaders to see someone favorable. You know, there's actually a great example of this. The, 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 the Mishnah Sanhedrin says that in order to, it's in Paragalaf, in order to find the person guilty of death, um, you need a Bezdin, what's called a Sanhedrin Katana. You need a, a court of 23 judges. Three judges, no matter how giant they are as Torah scholars, cannot rule in a capital case. You have to have 23 judges. And there's an interesting halacha, which some of us have discussed before. If, if all 23 of those judges rule that a person is guilty, he goes free. Because it cannot be that 23 leaders cannot find some reason to assume that they should acquit. So if every single one of them finds the person guilty, it must be that they didn't look at it seriously enough. In fact, there's even a special halacha that if you're the 23rd judge and you're convinced this guy is guilty, but if you say he's guilty, he's going to go free, you're not allowed halachli to say he's innocent in order that he should go free because you're not allowed to bear false testimony or, or give a false verdict. That's how important it is for a leader to always see the positive. I remember many, many years ago there was a tremendous Torah scholar and he announced, or his, his court announced that he was going to give an address. This was in the days before the internet. All people had to watch was the news on TV and there was only one channel, right? It was Kol Yisrael. And um, he was going to address, they rented out a stadium. They mamash rented out a stadium in Tel Aviv and 60,000 people attended this for his, for his address. And you could almost sense that, that the Jewish people were listening. Like he wanted to address the Jewish public, which was not a normal thing. And they televised it. And he started railing, maybe some of the older amongst you will remember this, he started railing against the secular, the reform, people who eat rabbits and pigs and whatever. And I don't, I don't judge the goggle, that's why I'm not mentioning his name, because maybe, I don't know, maybe he had a different idea. But I remember thinking, what a lost opportunity. And I'm not the only one who thought this. What a lost opportunity. And you could imagine the newsways were filled. He calls us rabbit eaters, those freeloaders who don't go to the army. You could imagine how much enmity and hatred and, and just horrible what came out of this. And I remember thinking, what would have happened if he would have said, I know that some of you maybe won't even go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, but you know what? You're wearing holy priestly clothing in your green army uniforms. What a different world we would be living in. Right? A, a leader has a responsibility to be melamed chos. Right? And if a Bezdin has no dissenting vote, therefore, if somebody couldn't find the positive, Right? Then he goes free. So leaders have a responsibility to see the world differently. That's idea number one. And before we use that to explain this entire issue, I just want to share with you another idea. There's an interesting question. There's a Gemara in Bava Metzi and Daphne Tet. Famous story. I'm not going to quote you the whole story. It's called, uh, it's an Agarita. It's a story in the Gemara. Um, it's, it's known as the story of the Tanr Shalachnai. It's a certain type of oven that was built and the rabbis were debating whether this particular type of oven causes things inside it to become impure or they remain pure. 
And Rabbi, in this particular story, right, Rabbi Eliezer disagrees with the Chachamim. He disagrees with the sages. Now the rule is that halacha you paskin like the sages because we have a, a, a verse, Achari Rabim Latot, we always follow the majority in, in such a ruling. And Eliezer was the dissenting opinion. He was an individual opinion, just like on the Supreme Court. But uh, Eliezer isn't done. Eliezer says, you know, if I'm right, let a tree be uprooted. A tree gets uprooted. Chacham said, we don't care. Follow the majority. And then Eliezer says, well, if I'm right, let the wall of the base medrash sort of fall over. And the wall of the base medrash falls over. I'm, I'm oversimplifying the Gemara. And finally, he says, if I'm right, let a heavenly... He was so sure he was right. If I'm right, let a heavenly voice come out and say, right, that Allah is like me. And, and a heavenly voice comes out. And says, Malachem etzel Rabbi Lezer, What are you, what are you arguing with Rabbi Lezer? Allah is like him. So you would think, okay, I mean, it's a heavenly voice. So the rabbis answer, You don't listen to a heavenly voice. Lo Halacha isn't in the heavens, Hashem gave it to us, and we have to rule Halachri. Okay. But there's another Gemara. This is a Gemara you can find in Erevin, and Dafyud Gimelam and Beis. It also appears in Yavamos, I think. I think in Yafyud Dalit, but it's definitely in Erevin. And there's a, a well-known machloket between Betil and Bet Shammai. And there's a big debate, who would we Paskin like? And a batkol comes out, a heavenly voice comes out, and says, Elu ve'elu divri elokim chayin. Both of these opinions have value. They're both the word of Hashem. V'alacha g'beitilel. But Allah is like Beitilel. And the Gemara explains that based on that batkol, that's why we Paskin like Beitilel. It tells us why we Paskin like Beitilel. Why we rule like Beitilel. So I don't understand. If ein mashgichin b'batkol, if you don't Paskin like a heavenly voice, then how could it be that, that, that we Paskin like, that we rule like Beit Hillel because of a heavenly voice? Right? Just say that you can follow either. Do we Paskin like a Batkol or, or not? So the truth is that in the Machloket between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the Gemara is not being Koveya Halacha. That's not a debate between two opposing opinions where we have to decide which one is right. The Gemara first makes the point and says, it's actually a brighter, that, that, that both of them are right. The Batkol is not telling me which one of them is halachically correct. The Batkol is telling me they're different. And the world needs the voice of Beit Hillel. Because Beit Hillel, that, and by the way, that generation, that particular time, and we're still living in that time, needs the opinion of Beit Hillel. It needs to see a more flexible world. It needs to understand where a person is coming from. Now that's a whole discussion about the difference between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. The responsibility of the rabbis is not to see the negative, it's to elevate the positive. We bear responsibility for the generation. You know, there was a terrible story, I think, I don't remember if it was last year, the year before, there was a, a minister here, a minister of health, recently resigned, Tam Chacham, you know, knowledgeable in Torah, representing Torah, um, did certain things that were great for the country, did certain things that were not. And at one point they asked him, he was the dissenting vote that refused to allow, um, you know, sort of reform, I, I don't like the labels, but for the purpose of this vignette, uh, the, the reform and, and, and the like, to, to, to have a space to pray, according to their customs at the, at the Western Wall, the Southern Excavations. And so they asked him in an interview, why will you not allow the reform to do it? Like, wh- what would it take? Like, why won't you allow them? And his answer was, because the reforming were not Jews for me. They will never have a place at the Kota. And I remember reading this. Now, uh, just to be fair, you can't assume reality based on what you read in the newspapers. And 
I don't know what he really said, and I don't know if that was what he said. I didn't see the interview. But even just the quote that somebody could be quoted as, I'd like to believe that if somebody quoted me saying that, somebody would say that can't be. That person could never say that. So the fact that everybody believes that he said that, even I don't know if it's true, is such a horrendous thing. And you've got to ask, you've got to take a step back, say, what is our goal? What is our goal as, 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 as leaders? What is the goal of a Rav? What is the goal of a Yeshiva student? What is the goal of the Jewish people vis-a-vis the world? The goal is not to be right. Of course you want to be right. But the goal is to bring everyone else up to that right. Noah is held responsible. By the way, it's interesting. The Medrash tells us, fascinating, the Medrash tells us that Noah was actually the Kohen Gadol, right? Um, um, there's, a, there's a Medrash in Bamidbar Rabbah, it says, Adam, right? Im korbano lavash bigdei Kohen Gadol. When Adam offers up his sacrifice, there's a whole sacrifice that he offers in the Medrash, sort of, you know, in, in, the, in the process of, of the, the, the hate of Eitz Adat, and one opinion is after the story of Cain and Hevel. Lavash bigdei Kohen Gadol. He wore the, the priestly clothing, the high priest's clothing. Kevin Shemit, when he died, Adam Mesarol Shait, he passed them on to Shait, his son. And when Shait died, Mesaran the Mitushelach. Umitushelach Lenoach. Noach was the Kohen Gadol of the world. He was the high priest of the world. Right? The goal of the Kohen Gadol is that his avoda, his service, his his ability to inspire his environment, that the energy that it creates is meant to elevate the world. And, and, and if the Kohen Gadol would elevate the world, then the Psak, the Din of the Sanhedrin, the way the courts would view Halacha would be different. And it's true that people can have a claim on the Kohen Gadol who could die as a result. And that's why the mother is nervous about it. Noach's tefillah could have elevated the world and, and the schut, the merit, might well have averted the flood. Now, I want to suggest something. This is a very dangerous thing to do. You know? Something's wrong. You know, the Rambam in Hilchot Deot says, there's a, a debate in the, in the Girsa, in, 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 in the Nusach, in the words, but there is certainly many versions of the Rambam that say that the whole point of a person being balanced in Hilchot Deot and the laws of character development are Kadesh Yehishalim Begufo. That a person has to be physically whole. And what we suggested in, stu- in our studies in Raita is that if a person is off balance, right, so I see some of the alumni here are like smiling, there will always be a physical manifestation. There's always a manifestation. There's some physical, right, if you're, if you're off balance, there'll be a physical manifestation. You know, you look at a kid who's not sleeping enough, he looks exhausted. You see a person's not eating well, he looks gaunt. You see a person is stressed, he feels it in his stomach. Or, or you can look at a person and say, what's going on? If the world is going through such a physical imbalance that the countries are closed down, that hospitals are full of people on ventilators, that people have to walk around with masks. We are, all of us, doing something wrong. Something is off balance. And it's not about whether you voted for Trump or you're going to vote for Biden. There's something much bigger going on. Now, I don't know what the world has to learn from this. And I'm not sure what the Jewish people have to learn for this, but I can tell you what we as individuals have to learn for this. We're, do, we're not doing our job. You know, I read an article about the death of the chief rabbinate. Just such a sad article. It was obviously written with someone by someone with an axe to grind. But I remember thinking, like, 
You know, nobody, I never saw, I've been in Israel now since 19, what is that, 40 years almost. I never saw anybody write an article about Rav Lichtenstein ripping him to shreds. Never. Because you couldn't rip a person like that to shreds. He was such an incredible human being. I never saw anybody write about Rav Nevenstel. What a pig. You, you couldn't say that. People would just laugh. We have to be better. By becoming better, we, we, we live up to our responsibility. It's not about giving the world musr. It's not about telling everybody what people are doing wrong. We're all screaming, how come they don't wear masks? How come they're protesting? How come they're going to weddings? We haven't created the energy of a society that causes people to realize we can be better. And it starts, each of us, with ourselves. I think that's the message of Noah. Look, Hashem knew that the world was going to be destroyed. It can't be that Hashem says, oh, what a mess. Hashem created the world in order to destroy it so that He could rebuild it. This whole journey of Noah is meant to teach us something. The world was meant to experience Corona and it's meant to be experiencing it now. And Bezrat Hashem will overcome it. But in the process, we have this opportunity to think about how do we really make the world better? And, and I think maybe that's the message of Parshat Noach, right? Even while, while, while we're still struggling with this plague, what can we do? You know, I, 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 I like to bike. It took me years to find an exercise that I could do. I have some knee injuries back from the army, and uh, I love bicycling. And, and during most of the time, sometimes they restrict your biking, but at least here in Israel, even when they put us under closure and you couldn't leave your house for like a thousand yards, you can go biking. And one of the things I love, sometimes I'll bike, I can only bike at the end of the day, is, is I catch mincha. Like I always dive in the yeshiva, dive in early mincha. I got in the habit of dive in early mincha, like the afternoon service. So I'm riding around the front, and you pass by like 20, 30 minyanim. It's beautiful. People are out in the street, and they're just ashraying. And I ride through this minion and that minion, and you know, it's, I mean, they're in the middle of the street, so I have to make sure not to hit a mincha guy, but you know. And, and, and it's just, it, it, it is something powerful. We have the ability to elevate our communities, and it begins with elevating ourselves. So that's a little bit of thought for the portion of Noah, um, just to share as an idea. It's not really the answer to the question. I'll just finish with one last thought that comes from Rabbi Sachs. Uh, you may have heard that Rabbi Sachs is not well. Uh, we should have in mind as well for him that he should have a refuash um, I had his I had his name in my Misha Berach list, but if anybody needs it, you can WhatsApp me. Um, so I apologize for not. If anybody knows it, you can yell it out now. But um, but we should have in mind. All- Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 